0: And as they go, you can turn your Bibles to First Peter, chapter four. This is the last week. We'll say First Peter chapter four because next week will be First Peter chapter five. Just in case if you're wondering where we're going next. Um, as they're going though, uh, I just want to give a short little encouragement to you guys as a church. Uh, many last annual meeting, we talked about uh, as the leadership sat down and started working through some of the distinctives. As people were kind of saying, like, what makes CBC distinct from the church down the road or from other things besides us just being naturally distinct, you know, we're talking about what makes this body of believers distinct from other things, like what would you expect if you were to come to CBC, and so uh, we have a time here where uh, Brian will be uh, stepping away literally out of town for a while here for a couple of of weeks in a row, and so um, I'm going to be working through those distinctives in Sunday School class, and I'd really encourage you guys to come through that, so for two reasons. One. For you to know what the distinctives are. Number two, to hold us accountable as leadership, as you're saying, if your distinction is this, and you're not doing that, that's one of your roles as a member here. Plus, we have been people that have been asking questions about membership and things like that, and this would be a great opportunity for you to come to learn about it. Because following this five-week time period, as we're working through that in Sunday school, we'll be having a membership class after that, and we'll be referring back to many of the things we talked about in Sunday School, so that would be a very big help for you because almost we can't really make prerequisites as if you do not attend this, but I would strongly urge you, if you are thinking about membership, to attend that because we will then be building on it for the membership class afterwards. So, again, if that was uh, confusing, starting the 29th of Sunday School, we're going to be working through the distinctives, and I'd really encourage you to come. If you're thinking about being a member or interested in membership, I'd encourage you to go as well. So this is for the whole body, for us to be breaking this down. Let's pray and uh, hop right into our text. Dearly Father, we come from a busy week, a week of work, a week of conversations with many people, a week of joy, a week of struggle, a week of living by grace, a week of reminding ourselves again as we sin that we need your grace. And so, Dearly Father, as we just sang that, may all of our days bring glory to your name. Even though those words come off of our lips easily, living them out is a totally different thing. And so, Dearly Father, help us today as Peter is reminding this group of people that so desperately need to be ready for the challenges ahead of them, how to live. Help us to see these principles, to understand that words penned literally thousands of years ago, because of your Holy Spirit, speak directly right now into how we are to faithfully live. May we take this time seriously, and then may we live obediently. In your name we pray. Amen. So last week, we started off with the whole concept about running, and remember we used the analogy of running is basically pace suffering over time, and as you learn how to run, you learn how that all through this, the running movement and everything like that, there is just struggle along the way, and the more you get used to the body struggling, the better you are when issues arise. Well, I want to take that same example, and because Peter is still wrapping up suffering here, I want to talk to you, too, about when you're training for a race or you're training for some type of competition, especially if the competition is outside, so if you, let's just pick on track right here because we're kind of moving into that season. If you're a track runner in central Wisconsin, you will not run every single race around 70 degrees in sun with a light breeze. All right? If you are running track, you will run when it is bitterly cold. You will run halfway through the race, the wind may change and go from no wind to 100 miles an hour wind in your face. It is a disaster weather wise in central Wisconsin. So, one of the things if you're getting ready for this, especially if you run track in central Wisconsin, you need to train in all sorts of weather. It would be a bad coach that would look at you and go, hey guys, it's raining out, we probably shouldn't run outside. Well, guess what you're going to probably have to do someday? Run, and so forth and so on. And so, as we train, as we understand that there's going to be elements of suffering, there's going to be changes along the way, with that in mind, Peter is talking to us that You need to learn how to be able to go through suffering in good times and in bad times. And all of this understanding of suffering gets you ready for when everything happens, you actually know how to live. And so what we're going to see here, even at the end of the sermon, you'll see in your notes there, we're going to try to just bring a conclusion to this whole matter of living faithfully while suffering, and almost as I labeled it, in my notes, you'll find out at the end, Like, what's a survival kit look like to remain faithful in a world? Peter gives us, here's how you're to live, here's how you're to think, here's how you're to function. And so, as we kind of wrap this up, let's look at that. But before we do, let's look at verse 16 through 19 here in this chapter and read it. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is, the, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. The title of this is a continuation of last week. Basically, the title is Faithful Christian Living in Suffering. And the first thing we're going to see we're going to see an interesting phrase here in verse 16. Because he's talking about if anyone suffers as a Christian, and now he gets to a not. Let him not, and let him not be what? And the, the answer is, let him not be ashamed. So, point number one is going to be there's a shameless suffering. So what does shameless suffering looks, look like? Because suffering for the cause of Christ is shameless suffering. This is what he's saying. And the reason why it's shameless suffering is because what we're going to see, and it's my point that I'm going to argue here, is suffering for the cause of Christ is shameless because it gives glory to God. Remember, he has just finished saying, when you suffer, don't suffer those who do wrong. And he lists the example, like murderers, thieves, things like that. So right on the the thought of this, he is saying, remember... If you suffer for the suffering of Christ, in the sake of Christ, you're doing this and there's no shame in that because God is glorified. Because remember, the people that he's writing to will literally, in a couple of months or even a year from now, will be experiencing this type of suffering. A family member, because they were a follower of God, is drug off to the Colosseum and they are killed in front of spectators for entertainment. And then all of a sudden you as that family member that is alive sees the guy that drags him off and in your mind going, if he rounds this corner where there's nobody else around me, I'm pulling my dagger and going to give him a thing or two. And Paul says this is not how we respond. Because now I give that guy a thing or two, I murder him, now I'm in jail, I can't say I'm suffering for the cause of Christ. No, the guy that was in the Colosseum is suffering. You're suffering because you're murderer. We leave it in God's hands. We don't, then he goes on. Last week we even talked it too. Your stuff is taken from you, it's stolen from you. The response of the believer is not, well, if we're going to do that, it takes two to tango here, I'm stealing somebody else's stuff. No, Paul's going to tell us this is how we live. We don't live by doing that. Another thing on the, on the heels of this, and this has been Peter's flow through this, is that as you live the Christian walk, and as you start doing things, you start saying things, and you start living in such a way that is counterculture to the world around you, the world around you is going to start to mock you. The world around you is going to say, you're crazy, you're silly, you're stupid, you're dumb, and they're even going to say, you used to do this stuff with us, and now you don't. What's wrong with you? And as those pressures start to mount around us, you didn't talk like that, now you talk like this. You used to hang out with us, and usually they use the phrase, you used to be fun, and now you're boring. All right, Because all the fun stuff, and I want to go like ask them, how much fun were we really having? All right, And we walk through this time, and so all the pressure is going to come on you, and the natural reaction is going to be, the, one of the emotions of the heart that comes when a person is suffering, is that I must have done something wrong. Because the big friend group that you used to have is saying, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, join us. And now all of a sudden you look over here and you see this minority group of believers and you're going like, I'm kind of embarrassed to be over here. And the mocking, and if I just went over there, you know, like everything is going to be okay. And he says, there's no shame in this. Don't drop your head when the suffering comes as if you've done something wrong. The response is, remember you are not doing anything wrong. You are doing this. Let God be glorified. The shame is re- returned with glory. Real quick here, let's, let's look at the context here in 1 Peter 4, 3. The time has passed suffering for doing what the Gentiles wanted to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. You're not there to judge them. What are you there to do? Live faithfully. You used to do that. You don't do it anymore. Your job is not to sit there and say, let me explain to you the judgment that is all coming to you because you guys are a bunch of evil people. You are to live faithfully. And as you live faithfully, what is going to happen? The rebuke is going to come. But when the rebuke comes from them, and then there's also God is going to rebuke them, but when the rebuke comes from them, you're not sitting there going, oh boy, I'm wrong. I'm a failure. I did all these things wrong. The response is that we stand head high understanding the truth. Because here's what is in front of us. When we hold to the truth and the world says you're wrong, just because the world says you're wrong, truth does not change. And if the world says that truth is evil and that evil is actually true, and it's based on what whoever in charge is saying. As the Christian who stands on the Word of God, you will be mocked. It's only a matter of time. You will be maligned. It's only a matter of time. Uh, this is why I remember Peter very often said, don't be surprised when this happens. Like, it's coming. Don't panic. It's coming. It will come if you stand for the truth. Peter reminds the believer that there's no shame and suffering. So we praise God. Before we move to the second point, though, one of the things that I think we need to make sure that we have in our minds all the time, and we're not going to turn to this passage, though, but Paul in Corinthians, is, he's, his famous passage that I would encourage you to just, just think through this concept, where Paul says he looks at these light momentary sufferings compared to the weight of glory that is in front of him, and he says it's not even a comparison. The light momentary suffering, and his, his example there was all the things he's done, shipwrecked and beaten and stoned and all these other things. They mean nothing compared to the weight of glory that is in front of us. And one of the reasons that we struggle with really grasping the idea that we will suffer for the cause of Christ and what that looks like is because we have such a low view of the glory and eternity that is set before us. If we had a high, proper biblical view, we would look at all these things in this world and say it's but a vapor, it is but a moment, it is just temporary, it means nothing to us, it means absolutely nothing to us. But yet, because we have such a low view of eternity, low view of heaven, or we've made heaven to be some type of materialistic, like, I get all the money I never got down here on earth, or I get all of this. The reason why we have a low view of heaven, the reason why we have a low view of eternity is because we have a low view of Jesus Christ and God. To be with Him is far better than to being here. And so we don't really look at God as somebody that we go, my soul longs to be with this. We don't really believe that He is my rock and my redeemer. We just say like, He's just, just a nice guy that gets me out of hell for free type of card. And it's saying, so because we, we have a low view of God, we have a low view of eternity, we have a low view of that, and we start thinking that just sitting up there with God, strumming our little harps on the clouds that all the comics think, is that's what heaven is. Uh, heaven is to be with the one our soul longs for. And so when someone makes fun of you, for acting and being like Him, you would go bring it on. That's what I was hoping you would see. You know, I was hoping you'd see Christ. Point number two here, verse 17 and 18. It's a very interesting phrase here in verse 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So now there's three phrases I want to unpack in these verses. It is time for judgment is one of them. Then we're going to unpack the phrase, the household of God. And then we're going to unpack the phrase, scarcely saved. All right, So I want to walk through verse 17 and 18 with a couple of things to point out. All right, So this phrase, it's time for judgment to begin. That means judgment is about ready to start. All right, So now let's figure out what Peter uses. So when you hear the word judgment, immediately you can go a gazillion places, but let's stay in the context of what 1 Peter is talking about. So 1 Peter 1.17. 1 Peter 1.17 tells us, And if you call on Him as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear through the time of your exile. So notice this is a present judgment. We're calling on Him Father, and this Father continues to judge at the moment here according to each other's deeds. And so since He judges according to each other's deeds, conduct yourself with fear through this time that you are in exile. So what we're seeing here, is that this judgment is judging God making a judgmental decision and judging those according to what people have done. Now, when we go to 1 Peter 4, 7, notice it says this, "...the end of things is at hand, therefore be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers." Meaning, stuff is about ready to happen, And when these things start to happen, there's going to be certain things that we need to expect. And Peter is saying judgment is coming, for it is time. When someone says, like, it's time for church to start, what's going to start immediately after we say it's time for church to start? Church. So when we say it's time for judgment to begin, what's going to start? Judgment. Okay, so now we have to ask ourselves, what judgment are we talking about here? Are we talking about the end of time where everyone stands before God and is judged? Are we talking about some other type of judgment? What's going on here? What is the judgment that Peter is talking about? Because remember, big picture here, before we get to the answer of that, verse 18 reminds us that there's two groups of people. There are those who believe and those who do not believe. All right? And we're going to see this, and we're going to see their judgment. Because as we see this judgment, he's going to say, we got this group that believes called the household of God, and we have the group that doesn't believe, and if you're not in the household, you would be an unbeliever, or another way of saying it, un- ungodly or a sinner. So you got two groups of people. And so as we're sitting here, this is, Jesus comes and not only divides history, but he divides humanity into those who believe that he is God and those who do not believe that he is God. To help you out with this, turn your Bibles to John chapter 5. This concept here is not new. John chapter 5, 24. Jesus speaking here, just to make sure that Peter didn't get off his rocker, in John chapter 5, 24, we have the Son of God, the second in the Trinity, literally saying, This is true, this is true, I say to you. All right, he didn't wait for the disciples to go, Yes, I agree with you. He always. I love how Jesus starts off and going like, whether you agree with me or not, because I am the word, this is true. So truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but passes from death to life. And now you go, whoa, 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 wait a minute, Pastor Tim. Didn't Peter just say judgment is starting in the household of God? Right? So we've got to handle this. We can't just go, who knows, Bible's full of contradictions, let's just go off into our ignorant sunset. know that we have to go, how do we take teaching like this and how do we put it together? So we have this group that does not believe and we have this group that believes and we have the group that believes is not going through judgment, but they're passing from death into life. okay So now we have to go, what does judgment look like then from God? Because the, what we're seeing in John 5:24 is a judgment that is happening at the end. And now we have a judgment that Peter's talking about that seems to be happening while we're here on earth. So what's going on in here? So we have to handle the question, what is the household of God? To help us figure this out. So the household of God is pretty simple. If we just turn one or two pages back to 1 Peter 2. So I want you to think through, when you think of a household, Peter gives us a great analogy of this in 1 Peter 2.5. As you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual household, a holy, holy, say that, priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, before we go any further here, I want to make sure we also look at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Speaking of Jesus being the chief cornerstone. Now, before we go any further, we need to think big, big Bible here, so let's walk through this. So, way back in the beginning, in the very, very, very beginning of, of time, before God created anything, the Holy Spirit, God the Son, God the Father chose to create. Created not because they were bored, not because they didn't have anything to do, they were completely content in the Trinity within themselves, in need of nothing, completely self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. The sheer the fact that they chose to create was for their glory. That we as people would see the glory of God and praise him for the glory that he had. Not adding any glory to him, but ascribing the glory that is due him. So he creates. And when he creates, he takes the jewel of his creation and he makes a garden. If you want to call it a home for them. and puts Adam and Eve in. What was the purpose of this home? Garden. It was different than anywhere else, right? He puts them a special place for them to live and have fellowship with God. And man says, no, thumbs his nose at God. I know my own, I got it. No, no, we don't need you, God. We don't need this. God kicks them out of the garden, out of the home. They're alienated with God. And what are we clamoring for? A home to be with God. And mankind, as it were, would wander All over. And then God, in his loving kindness, says to Moses one day, Let me show you. We're going to have a temporary tent where man can dwell with God, but it's on my terms and my terms alone. And all of the priests and the Levites are in this home, and only one can go in to the very center of the home to be with God on God's terms, and all the priests are standing there. No one's resting. We're all moving around, busy doing the work, understanding that the atonement is a, not a one-and-done thing. It's a continual thing. When are we going to get back with God? How is man ever going to dwell with God? And this longing to be home with God. And all of a sudden, God says, I am coming down in my son, and I am going to show you the way back home. And not only that, what does Jesus say when he's down here? I've got to leave because I'm going to send somebody else that's even better, that's going to live inside of you. And so Jesus on the cross, that great moment where he stands up, and he's on the cross, and sin is paid for, completely paid for, this temporary home, the curtain is torn in half, making the temple obsolete, no more of this. And the question is, where's the home going to be then? And the beautiful answer is the home. Now the Holy Spirit comes and dwells where? Inside the believer. And the beautiful part of that is what we're seeing here. Peter reminds us, guess what the church is? A group of people where God dwells being built together into a beautiful home or house together for the household of God where the Spirit dwells. And now as we've talked about this when we were back in 1 Peter there, we're talking about Christ being the cornerstone. One of the beautiful pictures of this then is God, as He is building this beautiful home together called the church, there's a chiseling that takes place. And I believe, as Peter is talking about this here, the judgment that's going to begin at the household of God, and if it begins with us, is the question, what will be the outcome of everybody else? But let's go back to what if begins with us, meaning God is going to be judging His church. But how is He judging them? I'm going to argue from the text that I believe He is purifying His church. And this chiseling effect of building this home together, what's going to happen is the church is going to get some massive, massive persecution. But what does persecution do? Purifies and chisels the church and makes them into what he has called them to be. Again, 1 Peter, just listen in verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So these trials are coming, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, is tested by fire, may be found in the result of the praise and honor and glory of God at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Peter is reminding them that suffering is going to come, and you know where it's coming first? The church. And this purifying, this judgment that's going to come on the church is not a judgment that is a... I can't believe you do this. This judgment is a purifying of the body of Christ. We'll pick that idea up in a second, though, but I want to look at this next phrase in verse 18. If the righteous is scarcely saved. Now, we want to be clear, this is not what it is saying. It is not saying that the the righteous are standing there going, I have no idea if I'm saved or not. Who knows what's going on? Maybe I'll make it to the end. I don't know if I'll make it. Who knows? We're just scarcely saved. That is not the word. That scarcely there is not the same concept that I just explained. That word scarcely there, I believe, as I, as as I study the text, that is stating this fact, that salvation is not a trite thing. Your salvation demanded the death of a perfect sacrifice. You should not in any way, shape, or form ever take your salvation for granted. Meaning, if the depth of your salvation is so great and God is going to do His own judgment on the church to purify it, if it means that much that to redeem your soul He sent His only Son, and if He takes it that seriously, what is He going to take those who have rebelled against that gift? And so the the point of this, and Paul picks this up in Romans 6. Remember, the thing is that Paul's explaining, listen, when you guys sin, the grace of God is poured out on your life. And he says, so the response is not to be, shall we continue to sin so we get more grace? And the answer is, God forbid. It's knock it off, you knucklehead. Take the grace of God seriously. Don't exploit it. It's We don't go about saying, you know what? If I'm going to sin, you know what, God's grace is covering that. No, the answer is no, I do not want to rebel against the Almighty God because I know the cost of this great salvation. That is why I, I believe as a church we need to make sure when we take communion we understand the great cost of this. This is no small thing that a rebellious humanity who said, we hate you God, that God in His sovereign grace came down and to redeem mankind and we sit there and go, wow, this salvation plan is a blessing that any of us are saved. And this is, that's how we should attach that. And then from that, he says, if this is how God handles his own church, the chiseling of all of this, if this is how he purifies his church through suffering, through judgment to bring about a beautiful bride, what about everybody else who's out here? And the answer is pretty obvious. Like, if the church is chiseled like this, what do you think the people who rebel God are going to be? So just like he promises to present his church, so the promise for the ungodly is such. That there in and of itself is a call until your last dying breath to say even to the ungodly what? Look, repent and believe. So that the same judgment that we are seeing here purifying us, you will receive a judgment, not the same the judgment the church is seeing, but that same judgment as well. It's interesting, though, this judgment that was going to come is going to come through guys like Nero and many of the other emperors in the Roman world. Let's just pause for that for a second. Judgment is starting, and it's coming from God. But how will these people see it? Nero taking someone and burning them and killing them. And you'd go, last time I checked, Nero's not God. He may say he was, but he's not. So how do we know that it's from God? Well, because the text is reminding us of this. But here's the thing that he's reminding them. Even though it looks like man is in charge of the suffering, God is at work purifying his church. I'm going to give you a statement here, and then we're going to also see it again in 2 Corinthians. But here's a statement. The enemies of God are going to be used by God to strengthen the people of God. Right, think about that for a second. The enemies of God, which would be the Roman Empire, right, is going to be used by God to do what? Strengthen the people of God. And to show you that this is the case, and this is the normal way God does things, turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 12. And in 2 Corinthians 12 here, Paul is talking about this thorn in the flesh that he has been given. And notice how Paul even describes this thorn in the flesh. In verse 7 here of chapter 12 in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So to keep me from becoming, being too elated or too prideful by the surpassing greatness of the revelation, meaning, he's saying, because God has revealed to me so many things, to keep me from being, thinking that I'm all that, and you know, like, as we would use phrases like, he was just the greatest thing since sliced bread type of deal, to keep him from doing that, What happened? A thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. So who was doing the harassing? A messenger of Satan. Just to help you out, that is not. these are the enemies of God. All right, like you're seeing how we're seeing the enemy of God here. All right, even though we may not know exactly what this messenger was like, it's clear that it is the enemy of God. And why was this messenger given to him to harass him to keep me becoming too elated? Three times I pleaded to the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said, meaning God, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all more gladly in my weakness, so the power of Christ may rest upon me. For this sake, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecution, calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. What do we see here? Paul saying the enemy of God was being used by God to purify the people of God. We see the enemy of God being used by God to purify the people of God, and we sit back and just stand there and just go, wow. All right, I don't know how that all works in the in all of humanity, but here's what I tell you: that everything that is coming towards you as a believer in Christ is being used by God to chisel you to become a stronger believer in Christ. Even though in the service it may look like that is like the enemy of God coming at us. And it's interesting, and I'd encourage you. In this matter, it is very, very, very interesting as such a time as this that we live. Now, a little plug for the Monday for last Monday night study. I sent out an email with the two um, YouTube links for you to watch. And now, um, all I have to put it this way is the new email service we're using, um, we can tell how many people opened it, and I'm not going to judge any comments there. But we had a good chunk of you open it. Like, literally, we can tell which email link opened it. All right, so we're watching. All right, um, and I'll, I'll put it this way though. Um, my mom has a five star next to her. She has opened more than any of you have opened, and she doesn't even <laughs> attend here. All right, so just throwing that out to you. Um, anyway, as these things get sent out to you, why we're doing that, why we want you to think through these things, is because suffering and all of these things are coming, and it's coming uniquely at us. But what it starts to come at is, is this, and here's how it's coming. And I don't know if it'll keep coming like this for a while, but it's coming through the idea of the truth, biblical truth, is oppressive talk. And so if you say biblical truth, you're oppressing the oppressor, and you need to be silenced at all cost, Because truth is an oppressor, especially Christian biblical truth, is the number one oppressor that must be silenced. And so the question in front of us then is, when you stand on biblical principles and the body over here, the enemy of this world, comes after us and says, you can't say that because that is oppressive talk, how do we respond? What do we do? And for the most part, which is incredibly interesting, When the, uh, if you would call it, the evangelical world doesn't really have, as we would call it, leaders. But when some of the guys get together and they start talking, guys who have a little bit more, have written more books and have more letters after their names, get together in the conservative world and they talk. One of the things that amazes them and surprises them, when they ask them, what do you think is going to divide the Christian church? And they, you know, to a man, they say, they never saw social justice being the thing that would divide us, but it is dividing the church left and right all over the place, and as if the church has no clue how to respond to it. So I would encourage you, strongly, 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 strongly encourage you to listen and to watch those links that I gave you so you get an idea of what's coming down the path. And it's just interesting, we never know what's going to divide us, we never know what's going to be, but we do know one thing, that we have the truth, and we need to as the text is going to tell us what do we do here. Point number three. The conclusion of the matter, he says, now therefore, in verse 19, therefore let those who suffer accordingly to God's will entrust their souls to the faithful creator while doing good. So point number three is trust God. How how are believers, how are they to suffer for the sake of Christ? The answer is twofold. Trust the faithful God and do good. All right, so if you get mocked verbally, or verbally assaulted, or anything else, the response is to bless them and do good to them. Now you may say, hold on, let's back up the boat here for a moment, Tim. If someone mocks me, if someone ridicules me, if someone comes in and shuts down what I'm doing, someone comes in and says, you can't talk that way, that's hate speech, and you go, no, this is just normal humanity, All right, like genetics is on my side and actual true science is on my side, not your side. All right, and we actually deal with this and they say, no, you're ignorant of these things. No, you're this. And then we bless them. Hold on, Tim, that's enabling them. They're going to keep on doing what they're doing. I mean, who's going to go after them? Who's going to say you're wrong and all these other things? If when someone comes in, they mock me and I'm supposed to respond with blessing. Guess what I'm going to get more of? Mocking, and we're going to go, that's not what the Bible says. You may think that, because guess what you are in that person? You are judge, jury, and executioner of their life. Because they've mocked you, and you're going to go, you know what you deserve back? Mocking and ridicule. The Bible does not call Christians through that. Peter reminds them here. And he's saying this to a group of people that literally their loved ones are being killed and they will be burned at the stake and their stuff is going to be destroyed and they will be scattered around. He's speaking to a group of people like that. Not us little social media warriors where someone gives you a thumb down on your post. All right, He's not talking about that. He's talking about real, true suffering. The only way for a believer to bless and to do good to those who hate you is to trust in a faithful Creator. Remember 1 Peter 2, Jesus was our example. 1 Peter 2, 23, When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued to entrust Himself to Him who judges justly. Our example is to be that. Jesus, when He was on the cross... The sovereign creator who literally by just the word of his mouth created the world and everything was created through him is hanging on a cross and he sees rebellious mankind continually rebelling against all of everything he has talked about to the point where they say, no, not only do we not hate this message, we hate the man who's doing it and we will kill the man who is standing here in front of us reclaiming the truth. As they're crucifying him, because Jesus trusted himself to the Father to redeem his people that he is saving and to cause him to be raised again because the sacrifice was perfect, he trusted God through this all, was able to look at the crowd in front of him and say, what, Father, forgive them, they have no clue what they're doing. Do our hearts turn the same way when we look at the masses and their confusion, when we look at people struggling with some of the most basic, basic truths in humanity, your own personhood, as they're struggling with that, do we mock and ridicule or do our hearts turn in sorrow because of the way sin is blinding them and we say, forgive them, they have no idea what they're doing and our hearts are turned to want to bless them. Because there's a phrase here in this as well. Entrust your souls to the faithful creator. Why does he not say God? Why does he say creator? I mean, because he could have used a gazillion other attributes or even other words that he's talking about there. Why faithful creator? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, The reason why he uses faithful creator here, one of them, I want to first go to 1 Peter 3.12. This idea of faithfulness. 1 Peter 3.12 for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the faithful creator. What do we know? He is faithful to do what he has promised. So his eyes are on you as you suffer. He sees what's going on. He is not just out there. Maybe he had a bad day. Remember when the ba- um, Elijah's on Mount Carmel and they're mocking back and forth with each other and Elijah goes, maybe Baal had a bad day. Alright, maybe he got lost or whatever, right? And the moment that Elijah turns and he prays to God, what does God do? He answers the prayer immediately beyond anything that Elijah could have even asked or thought. And so what we see here is not only we see a faithful person, but we see the Creator. Alright, so I want to go, let's peel back. Paul, be part. Peter is talking to a group of people that are in Rome and under Roman authority. At that time, Rome basically own the wor- the known world at that time They're really good with roads, they're really good with everything else. You have an emperor there who is pretty much saying he is God, and you know what, you don't like what they're doing, they'll send in a group of men that will come through, these soldiers, these legions of men that will come through, and that town after town that rebelled against Rome, not only were they destroyed and everybody else taken off, that Rome would do is they would come in and they would bring salt and destroy the land, dig up the land and put salt there so no one ever would know about you ever again because Rome is rome and you don't mess with rome that was what they're living under you have an idea that rome doesn't like they don't have to worry about that idea anymore because they don't have to worry about you and no one is stopping this roman world and peter says charge to the faithful what creator who is far bigger, far greater. He was at the beginning. He created all of this stuff and he's got it all under control working it all to your good. So what can you do? You can trust the creator God. The big creator God. All right? We're we're going to get to Genesis eventually, but literally that phrase in the beginning means everything. Because he said, God was in the beginning long before Rome, and God's going to be here long after Rome. He's reminding them, the faithful creator is saying, trust me. So, in summary of this whole verses 12 through 19, how are we to live? And now I'm, I'm saying this because here's what is in front of us. We will see. Every single day, as we get closer to the end at hand, we will see persecution, we will see things coming at us, and we need to be ready. We don't want to be the group of people that all of a sudden, when your house is starting to flood because the pipe breaks, say, Should we, maybe we should go get a shop back? No, you want to be ready with the shop vac when the pipe leaks, so you're ready for it. All right. And so what I really do believe Peter's doing, he's saying to this church body, get ready. Here's how you need to be thinking. Here's how what you need to be ready to do. So when suffering comes at your way, you're not sitting there going, now what do I do? So I have that in your notes in front of you there. It says this. I think I have them A, B, C, D, right? So if I say one, if I start numbering them, just follow along. The first one there, Peter tells us, don't be surprised. All right, like, I always like to remind ourselves, sinners sin. Okay, so if people hate God by nature, remember that? Guess what they're going to do with you if you're a follower of God? Hate you. So don't get surprised that someone who hates God hates the follower of God. All right, like this is should be obvious, right? So what are we supposed to be if we're not surprised? Self-controlled, sober-minded. That means thinking clearly. That means understanding what's going on around you. Meaning, being understanding the times, being wise as you are, self-controlled, sober. Not running to one extreme or the next. All right, so literally this would be a rebuke for those of us in the room that love to run to certain organizations or TV programs that tell us everybody's going to die tomorrow or the other ones that are going over here, this whole back and forth. I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard in certain things if the Keystone Pipeline would be put back on, everything would be okay. But there's a group of people that just hate everybody over here, right? What was the latest run? All these gas stoves are coming after your gas stoves, people. Hang on to your gas stoves, right? Like panic, all right? Well, we have electric, so we're good. You can come over to our house then, all right? You know, and like all of these things that we're going back and forth on this panic, we're running, and Peter's saying, listen, be self-controlled, sober-minded, relax. Here's what you were to do, though. Then the next one is, your attitude of their heart is to be one of rejoicing, Joy, because God is working all these things together for your good. So you're thinking clearly, and it starts to impact the heart of realizing that there's joy in this time because God is working these things. Even when you can't see it working together for your good, God is working together for your good. Next, there is no shame in this because in the gospel there is no shame. What did Paul say to the Romans? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it is the power of God to save, and that's what I'm giving the world. Next, we see that all of this, as we are sober-minded, self-controlled, as our heart is rejoicing in what God is doing, as there is no shame when the world ridicules us, we're able to do what God has called us to do from the very beginning is glorify God. As John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. I pray that we, each one of us, live with this concept in mind, you need to be forgotten and him remembered. At the end of the day, like, like I'll help you out, if you ever want to encourage a pastor, do not say anything about what he said in the sermon. Say, thank you for showing us God, because I could care less if you like what I said or not. The purpose of me is not me up here doing some wonderful thing with a text. I want you to see Christ and Christ alone. Like, by the time we're done here, you want to go, oh, who was that other pastor after that other guy? Who cares, all right? Our job was to faithfully proclaim Christ and Him crucified all of our days, and that's what you want to know. Not like, who cares if one guy, you like this guy. I mean, I know you all love my jokes as much as possible, but that's not what I'm here for, all right? We're here to point to Him and Him alone above all. And that's what, at the end of the day, what you want to also be known as. That people didn't see you, they saw Christ. At your job, and what you did, and everything else. And how is that possible? E, here, entrust your soul to Christ. Having faith that God will do what He says. And once you have that... That you've entrusted your soul to Him and Him alone. The response then after that is you are free to do what you were called to do, even from the beginning of time, is to bless others. So, how do we bless others? What does that look like? Number one, the blessing of others would be to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. Because we're gonna close here in a song. It talks about grace that is greater than our sin. When we truly understand from the place of grace that we are, back to the scarcely are those saved, right? When we truly understand by God's grace we are who we are, our response in that is to see a lost and dying world around us and say to them, look to Christ and Him and Him alone. He is the answer to all of these things. And it's only from a spot of understanding that our great the grace that God has given us is greater than any of our sins, and we are saved by grace, and grace alone from that motivates and produces in us a life that is saying, how can I bless others because I have been so richly blessed? How do I bless those around me? And so when suffering comes in, you're like, hey, that's a good thing because I'm accused of being a follower of God, which what I was pursuing after me anyway all you're doing is reiterating and saying hey you look like a follower of God and you should go yes all right that's what I was looking to do I've been pursuing after him so much that when people see you they see Christ and if they mock you that should be a positive thing in your life that you're going now again we are not we do not seek suffering because of the verbiage that we speak all right you don't come into a room and just I just want to let all of you know bunch of sinners you're all going to die and go to hell all right, yes, that is true. All right, but there's a thing called grace and there's a thing called there's a way of speaking the truth in a way that is not abrasive, but it doesn't change the what? Truth. Now there may be a time where you need to say, "Hey, you're wrong, and I'm going to keep calling you on it until you change because you're wrong because truth is not a popularity contest. We just say by God's grace, we know how to live in this world. Because here's what happens. As the enemy attacks, as God uses the enemy to strengthen us and to become more conformed to his image, we need a boldness, as Paul prayed for, that when confrontation comes, that we don't run, we stand boldly, not in our own strength, but on the strengths of the truth. When you stand on the side of truth, you do not need to shout, you do not need to scream, you just need to say the truth. Because the truth is the truth. But here's the real challenge in front of us. Do we know the truth? Are we people who study the truth? Are we people that enter in the Word of God, that when the error comes at us in those very slight little ways, we're able to say, no, we know the truth. And since I know the truth, I can actually entrust my soul to the faithful Creator. Because when you don't know the truth, you don't know how to trust your soul because you have no idea what the faithful creator actually said. And so when the waves of this world crash against us, when you're sitting there and you're going, I don't even know if I should be jabbed, if I shouldn't be jabbed, I don't know what I'm supposed to do and all of these things going forward and all of the stuff that just comes flying at us, right? When we sit there, it is easier for us to get drawn away into a ton of emotion into a ton of absolutely silly conversations because at the end of the day, our answer is this, I trust my soul and my life to the faithful creator and my job is to do good to those around me. And that's what Peter's reminding them. He's going to turn the corner here and start talking to the elders and the leaders among the flock because they are the ones who set the tone and the pace. And so again, if I could encourage you this, look to Christ. And Christ alone, while following Him and entrusting him, and when you do that, you'll be able to do good those around you. Let's pray. Dear only Father. We stand in the second here and going to sing about the grace that is greater than our sin. If there's anyone in the room here that does not know Christ, may today be the day that you draw them, that you open their eyes to see their need of a Savior. For those of us in the room who do know you, may you open and chisel away in our own lives those areas that we need to be more conformed to you. Do not give those a moment's rest until they come back, ask for forgiveness, and follow you. May you be glorified in it all. In your Son's name we pray. Amen.